here with you. I will have to admit, after seeing Josh and Casey's pictures being on the Sea of Galilee, I wish that I was there. We've been there four times, and it's, uh, it's just such an incredible... I, I wish everybody in this room could make a trip to Israel and experience what they're experiencing right now. But we're here keeping grandkids, and so we're enjoying our week. And I'm so glad my wife Beverly is with me today. She, uh, I'm grateful for your prayers for her over the last couple of years. And I'm here to tell you she's really doing well. And man, is she good looking. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you so much for that. Man, this has been incredible this morning. The worship songs have already done better theology with the Lamb of God than I'm going to be able to do. And then, sister, I'm not sure where you are, but what a blessing it was to have you speak those words. So I hate to have to follow that. Uh, it's like when I have to follow Beverly when she speaks. It's just it's really hard. But, but next week is Palm Sunday, and for Christians... That's the week that leads into the Passion. It's when Jesus came into Jerusalem, what we often call the triumphal entry. And uh, while it's Passion Week, actually it's a name that spans eternity. Jesus was the Lamb of God before there was any need for a Lamb of God. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8 says, Oh, I was afraid of that. Josh may be able to read that, but I can't read it. <laughs> Give me just a minute. I'm going to get my slides here. Maybe I can read it off of them. The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. And then... Peter, in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18, says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen, listen, he was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times for your sake. So what's this mean to us? Well, it means that Jesus was not God's plan B. From the very beginning, before time, Jesus was chosen to be the Lamb of God. He's always been, that's always been a part of His identity. And the shed blood of God's Lamb was determined even before it was needed. But... He will always be the Lamb of God. This title for Jesus is used 31 times in the book of Revelation. And in fact, listen to this one passage, how many times it's used in it. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light. And the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Not on, on no day will its gates ever be shut. For there will be no night there. 
The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. From before time was to after time is no more. Jesus, the Lamb of God. Lamb imagery appears throughout Scripture. And I want to take four statements this morning that help to summarize and capsulize this idea of the Lamb. The first one is found in Genesis chapter 22, and it's a story you probably know well. It's a story I know well, but it's a story that makes me cringe every time I read it. God comes to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I want, to take, I want you to take your son, your one and only son... I want you to take him up on the mountain and sacrifice him to me. This is the son Abraham's waited for for years and years. But immediately he sets out. And when they get to the mountain, he says to his servant, you stay here, we will go up and we will worship and we will come back to you. And so they head up the mountain. And as they, as they do, Isaac notices a problem. He says, Dad, we've got a knife, and we've got some wood, and we've got some fire, but Dad, and here's our first big question, big statement, where is the lamb? This shows that long before God gave the law through Moses, this lamb imagery, the practice of lamb sacrifice, is already well established. The law simply codified it. Lambs were offered regularly in the Jewish faith. Seven were offered on the first day of every month. A lamb was to be offered at the birth of a son. And there were lambs offered for sin offerings. And then you know about it, Passover time, the thousands and thousands of lambs that would be sacrificed. And it was always a male without defect and spotless. You see, Israel's religion was a bloody one. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of lambs being offered. In fact, Josephus, the Jewish historian, sometimes he was prone to exaggeration, but he says at Passover time, coming down off of the Temple Mount, the, down the gutter, that the blood of the lambs would flow ankle deep. Why? Well, Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11 reminds us of why. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And this is a principle that Isaac understood 500 years before it's codified in the Law of Moses. And so his question, where's the lamb? Abraham's answer comes in verse 8 when he says, God himself will provide the lamb for the, for the burnt offering, my son. And, and you know the rest of the story. They go up on the mountain. Abraham builds an altar. He ties Isaac up. He places him on the altar. And he has the knife ready to sacrifice him. But an angel stops him. And in verse 20, uh, verse 20, chapter 22 and verse 11 says, But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. 
Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place Yahweh Jireh. The Lord will provide. And to this day it said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. I'm betting that that was one of the, the most important significant days in Abraham's life. And it was a moment when Abraham saw the gospel. You might be saying, Rick, what are you talking about? This is 2,000 years before Jesus came. Abraham saw the gospel? Well, listen to what Jesus himself said in John chapter 8 and verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And Paul will write in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16 and say the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture, scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Somehow Abraham understood that through his seed was going to come the blessing to the world. And perhaps that moment on Mount Moriah was when he began to realize that, that God would provide the Lamb. The next statement comes in the setting that I mentioned at the beginning of the, of the sermon. As I said, many scholars think this is the week leading into Passover. For 400 years, Israel has not had a prophet. Heaven has been silent. The prophets not only uh, were national heroes, but they were also Israel's assurance that they were still the nation of God. But 400 years without a prophetic voice is a long time. Folks, America doesn't even have that much history. And as we come to John chapter 1, there's excitement in the air because there's this new prophet out in the wilderness and he reminds them of what they have heard about and what they have read about Elijah. He dresses in camel hair. He eats weird food, locusts and honey. And in the tradition of the prophets, he, he preaches about judgment and about the need to repent. And people are flocking out into the wilderness to hear him. Many of them were being baptized. And, and somehow their hopes were being stoked. God is back. The silence is broken. The tone of his preaching was sharp. It's like pouring salt into a wound. He called the religious leaders a brood of vipers. He refused to baptize those religious leaders unless they could show signs of repentance. And he warned that the axe was at the root and that if they did not repent, they would be cut off and burned. 
He was a different kind of prophet than we might have expected the one who would announce the coming of Messiah to be. I mean, what church do you know of that would hire John the Baptist to be their preacher? And yet with Passover approaching, his first words when he saw Jesus come down to the Jordan River were these. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isaac asked, where's the Lamb? And John said, look, the Lamb of God. Have you ever wondered why at the outset of Jesus' ministry, John didn't say, look, the Messiah? Why didn't John say, look, the king of Israel, the king of the Jews? Why didn't he say, the lion of Judah? Well, John was the son of a priest by the name of Zechariah. And so John would have been well acquainted with lambs and blood. And what the blood of millions of lambs could not secure, this lamb would. And just like the lambs that were brought to be sacrificed, the way they were looked over for any blemishes or defect, so was Jesus. He had been examined from every angle. And at least three times people said, we find no fault in this man. Further, the Old Testament lambs, like them, Jesus didn't resist when he was led to the slaughter, as Isaiah so beautifully describes in Isaiah chapter 53. But unlike the Old Testament lambs, Jesus was a once-for-all sacrifice. And the reason is this. The blood of an animal can't satisfy the demand for justice because it is not the equivalent the blood of an animal for the blood of a human, that's just not really justice. The writer of the Hebrew letter says this on this subject. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But John said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The perfect substitute. Why? Because he's the perfect Lamb of God. And this was the gospel that was so boldly preached by those early Christians. Paul and others, when they would come to a new city, first thing they'd do when they came to that city was to go to the Jews. And can you imagine, as they delivered this message to the Jews, you don't need to do that Lamb thing anymore. Because the perfect lamb has been offered. And so in Acts chapter 8, Philip gets this message from an angel. The angel says, I want you to go out to the desert road, and you're going to meet up with a man there. And so he goes there, or he's taken there, and here's this chariot coming by, and he flags down the chariot, uh, thumbs, you know, puts his thumb out, I guess, and the chariot stops. He gets in, and it's a, an Ethiopian eunuch. And what's he doing? He's reading from the scroll of Isaiah. They don't have chapters and verses then, but believe it or not, he is reading what we know as Isaiah chapter 53. And his question to Philip is, what's this talking about? 
This lamb imagery, who's it talking about? And Philip chose that moment to begin to speak to him about Jesus. Jesus, the Lamb of God. Today, there are some people who are discounting the idea of what's called substitutionary atonement. They're saying, you know, the cross and blood, that, that's just too offensive to preach in the 21st century. And part of that I get, because as you've been going through this great, and I love that Josh is doing this, the scandal of the cross, and all these different facets of what the cross means. Unfortunately, for too long, substitutionary atonement's about what we, it's what we emphasize the most in evangelical and fundamental churches. But that doesn't mean you throw the baby out with the bathwater either. Because you can't take the blood away from our story. If you do, you don't have gospel anymore. Paul said in Romans chapter 3 and verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The third great statement was spoken by John on the Isle of Patmos. Actually, it was recorded by John. He records this event that's taking place in heaven where there's thousands of angels and there's these living creatures and, and the elders and this is what they are saying. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 12. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that's in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Can you imagine being in that throng? We've kind of done that today, haven't we? We've sung songs like that together. He is the only one who's worthy of praise and honor and glory and power forever. Well, in order for, for me to be honest to this idea of the Lamb of God, there's one more I need to mention to you. I'd rather leave it out. But it's this. Hide from the wrath of the Lamb. When we, when we think of a lamb, what do we think of? Gentle, right? Meek, right? Okay, confession time. After Beverly and I first got married, one night we went to see a movie, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. How many of you, how many of you seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Okay. Okay, so you know there's this scene where King Arthur and his men come up to this cave, and there's a man who tells them about this killer rabbit. Oh, by the way, I need to tell you this. When Beverly and I went to see it, Beverly didn't see it at all. She slept through the whole thing. But I saw it. 
And so they're talking about this killer rabbit. And they're making fun of it, you know. Oh, killer rabbit. And so they head off down there. Who's afraid of a rabbit? Well, that rabbit ends up mauling eight of them. Who's afraid of a lamb? But look at what it says in Revelation 6 and verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called out to the mountains, uh, they called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? A day is coming when no one is going to be able to escape the fact that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And on that day, there are going to be people who are going to try to hide from him. And so Revelation 17 and verse 14 says, They will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will triumph over them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with Him will be His called, chosen, and faithful followers. I plan on being there. How about you? I want to be there. And so there was this re large religious service that was being held at the Golden Gate Exposition in San, uh, San Francisco, oh, a little over a hundred years ago. And the preacher, who was a very gifted speaker, was questioning the idea of something as ghastly as a blood, bloody Jesus be, being required by God for our salvation. Ruth E. Marsden was recording back then writing about this event and she said that when the preacher finished a timid elderly lady stood up in the midst of the crowd and began quietly singing the song by William Cowper that says there is a fountain and a hush fell over the assembly as they heard her singing these words there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains and then about that time as she began the second verse they said about a hundred people stood up and they began to sing with her dear dying lamb thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. And by the time they got to the third one, they said there were over a thousand people standing and singing, Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. I love that, don't you? But there's a verse that I don't ever remember singing when I was a kid. And it goes like this. When this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, 
I'll sing thy power to save. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that before time began and after there is no more reckoning of time, that we have been privileged to come to know Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Father, we thank you for seeing our need before we even knew it, and we thank you for his faithfulness in going through what he did so that he could fulfill this. And so to him be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And amen.